session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jolakwin. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Memory Thief by Lauren Aguirre, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. I look forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is Missing Each Other by Edward Brodkin and Ashley Palathra, Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. And so this book talks about human relationships and how we connect and an aspect of connection or really what allows for us to connect, which is attunement. And so it's related to that we're tuning in, um, but when we are attuned with each other, that means that two people in interaction, it could be more, but if we focus on two people in interaction, they are both connected to themselves and the other person, and they create this natural dance that can flow between each other. That's when attunement is working well. And when an uh, interaction is going well, we feel that state of flow. It feels natural. And so they break down what this looks like, what this means uh, to be attuned with one another. And as they point out early in the book, when you think about it, we very often don't attune with one another, have these meaningful interactions in today's day, it's very cliche to talk about things like being distracted by phones and devices and having things going on, but it really is true that how often, if you think about it yourself, do you sit down and have a conversation with someone where you are face-to-face looking at each other without any direct uh, distractions for a long period of time or even more than a few minutes? Most people will think, oh, we were talking to each other, but they had their phone in their hands or one of them was writing a text while listening to the other person say a story. Uh, So we really don't have that full attunement and that attention that really is needed to create that emotional intimacy that we can have in interaction. So they do point to how we've been missing this and also how COVID took away a lot of our in-person and still does to a degree, in-person interactions that we used to have and the cost that that can have for all of us. And so yet another reminder of how important it is for us to value our interactions. And if we value something, we want to make sure we're giving it our time, but also our genuine attention. So they break down attunement into four principal components, and they are very related. And in a way, it's not like they are so discrete and differentiated. They all blur into one another to some degree, but they try to break it down into these four components. The first component is the foundational one, because really it's more of a state of mind and being than just some kind of a action or behavior. So that first principal component is relaxed awareness, which can sound like an oxymoron when we think of being relaxed and aware. Sometimes they seem like different things. Or 
Another way they phrase it is calm alertness, which also can seem like an oxymoron. If we're calm, we don't think of that as being very alert. And that's because it is this balanced state when we're talking about relaxed awareness, the way they describe it in the book. It's a straight state where you're feeling calm, calm enough so that you can keep your own feelings and emotions um, at bay, or at least be aware of them, but not be overwhelmed by them. And you're also aware of the other person. There is a focus or space for you to take in the other person. So as they discuss, it's definitely related to not the same thing, but related to mindfulness, where you are aware, you are taking things in, you are in the moment. And of course, that's going to be very important if you're going to have attunement, if you're going to be tuned into one another, you have to have that um, mindfulness to take in what's going on in the interaction, both from the other person and also within, which is another uh, balancing act that we have to do. You know, I, I keep using this word attunement. It might be unfamiliar to many. It's not commonly used so much so that I was typing it to tell someone what the book was about, and it was underlined in red, meaning that I was misspelling a word. So we can see that it's not a word we are commonly using or is commonly accepted and maybe commonly not part of our relationships with something we want to cultivate more and more. So this relaxed awareness state is very important, critical, and they consider it foundational to having attunement. So again, it's awareness both internally and externally. So I'm feeling my own feelings. I'm aware of what I might be feeling, what I'm going through, what I'm going through coming into this conversation or interaction. So if I'm tired, I can take that into account. If I'm stressed, I can take that into account. If I'm in a good mood, whatever it might be, coming into the conversation, I'm going to have some state of being that I'm experiencing at that time. And it's important for me to be aware of that. And then also to be aware of the feelings I have physically, emotionally, as the interaction continues. So I feel, oh, I'm getting a little bit sad or I'm feeling upset or uh, that made me laugh or something about that remind me of something else. So I'm aware of what I'm going through, uh, which allows me to experience empathy for the other person. And of course, I'm aware of what the other person is uh, experiencing. So this state of relaxed awareness is critical and really necessary to create a emotionally attuned type of a interaction. So that's the first component. The second one is listening. And so, of course, we have to listen to the other person if we're going to create a emotionally connected communication, conversation, interaction. But here, they explain they don't just mean listening as in hearing the other person, and not just even sometimes we think of, well, there's hearing and listening, and listening is deeper, yes. But they're actually saying taking in the whole person. So it includes all the senses, essentially. So you're seeing them, hearing them, picking up on um, small facial cues or tics or experiences that they show through their uh, communication, their, their language, the words they're choosing, tone of voice, body posture, all these types of things go into the listening component. So I'm really looking at the other person. Again, if I'm in this relaxed, aware state, I can be calm, but I'm attentive and paying attention to the other one. So listening is very, of course, necessary to having this type of attunement and connection with your uh, partner. The third one is understanding. And so this is taking the listening 
and you're in this relaxed, aware state, and now trying to use some thinking, but it's thinking and feelings together, to try to understand the person and the other, the individual, what they're expressing, what they're experiencing, and what you're also experiencing as well. So here we can also include, as they do, empathy, and they describe emotional empathy and cognitive empathy. So in an emotional empathy, I'm feeling your feelings. So you tell me a sad story, and it actually makes me a little sad, which allows for me to understand what you might be feeling and experiencing, and also to show a feeling of connectedness with you. Um, and then there's cognitive empathy, which is being able to think about it in a, a more cognitive thinking level, what the other person is experiencing. And they are not one in the same. And some people can be better or more comfortable with one or the other. And it could be helpful to have both in order to really get a sense of understanding the other person, what they're expressing, what they're experiencing, and to connect with that. And so empathy is an interesting topic that gets a lot of attention. And sometimes people just say we need more empathy. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. It could be important to, to look at it a little bit more deeply to understand what we go through. So when someone tells you something, you will likely feel something based on what they are expressing. So if someone expresses something heartbreaking, you will likely feel something sad within you that will help you connect that they are probably sad. Now, the hard part of this goes back to um, when I was talking about the awareness of yourself. It's not just about in the moment, but knowing yourself actually will help you be more aware in the moment in the sense that, well, let's say someone shares that they, I, I lost my grandmother last year. So if someone now tells me about losing their grandmother, it feels differently than it did before she had passed last year. And so now I can have that awareness that what I feel when they share this, I can connect to it more deeply, but I also have to be mindful of, is it some of my own feeling in my experience or am I staying with this person now in the moment? And so this is where empathy is, is complicated because what we want to try to do is be aware of our feelings and where they're coming from, which could include ourselves and our past and our own issues and things we have. And it could also be that we're connecting to the individual's feelings and what we're getting from them. And it's not going to be black or white. And really, we're, it's a dynamic process where we need to use our own feelings to understand their feelings. But we can at times differentiate what might be going on. Someone shares a story about a family member, let's say, say they talk about their mother and you have a, a bad relationship with your mother or you just had a fight with your mother, you're going to feel differently about what they talk about likely because of that. And this is actually something that therapists have to be very mindful of, that we are really trained essentially and our practice is to be emotionally attuned with our clients, to connect with them, to make them feel seen and understood. So listen to understood, two of those components right there, um, to make them sh feel that we can validate what they're they're going through. And we have to really show them that we get what they are, are, they are experiencing. But of course, each therapist is not just a blank slate, as might have been hoped for by some early psychoanalytic thinking, but they are going to be a human being that has their own experiences, their own biases, values, all sorts of things. And in the moment, we have to try our best to tease all of that apart or to be aware of, okay, when this client is speaking and it's making me feel this way, 
what is that feeling telling me? Where is it coming from within me and between me and this person and from them and all those dynamic processes happening at the same time? It's very complex, but it takes a certain level of going between your feelings and your thinking, which are very interconnected, and going back and forth, shuttling back between those. I, I remember one therapist describing it as going between your, I don't know if they called it your heart and your mind, just to simplify it or make it seem um, maybe uh, in a more animated way of like your heart is the feelings and your mind is the thinking. You go back and forth because you feel something, but you try to understand where is this coming from. So we can see that in a way it's simple and automatic to a degree because when we interact with one another, all these things are happening unconsciously a lot of the time. You're just connecting with someone. You can, When you vibe with someone, it wasn't because you thought these things through. It was just happening. But when we break it down, we can see how complex it actually is. And the fourth component I'll get to and, and give some closing thoughts about the book is mutual responsiveness. And so the first state uh, or principle is relaxed awareness, which is the state of being. Mutual responsiveness is in a way how things play out. But it means that also we have to be in the moment with the person as things change. We follow each other. When you think of, for example, people who play jazz, improvisational jazz together, they don't know exactly where the person is going, but you'll see sometimes it feels like they do. They're so attuned with one another that they can go with one another um, to make sure they, they, they follow each other when things are happening and what's about to happen. But sometimes you're going to get things wrong, and you have to be ready for that too. That at times it could uh, happen where you think you know what the other person is thinking or feeling, and you'll be wrong. Even they talk about in the book that parents and their infants, they they think or they try to be attuned with their child, but they're often wrong, even sometimes up to 70% of the time, but it can be okay. Often what is valuable is repairing the rifts as they come up, these little things that come up. You repair them, you actually can make the relationship and the interaction stronger. But you have to be aware of when they're happening and to respond to them, not react to them. Respond to them in a way that continues the flow, that doesn't change the connection in some way or react in a way that's either angry or defensive and try to move forward from there. Easier said than done when you're in an interaction, but when you see people in a mutually responsive, as they describe it, interaction, there's this sense of ebb and flow. We kind of are dancing together. Sometimes we'll miss a step, but even we'll turn that step into the next step that can work out and we can go forward okay. So we see that this understanding of attunement, when we break it down into these steps, which overlap, as I mentioned, can give us a better sense of what we are doing and trying to do, what can go right and what can go wrong in our interactions. And also in the book, they include exercises to try to help us with each of these four components that include things like meditation, also include Tai Chi, so very these slow movements, but that include getting in touch with your body and your feelings and your sensations. And they also include an attunement quiz in the book so you can see your overall ability or inability when it comes to attunement, but also each of the four components, which ones you might be stronger or weaker in. And the good news is, yes, like anything, we probably all have a starting point and some kind of ceiling, the best that we can do. But almost anyone can be better at attuning or practicing these 
um, different components to be more connected in our interactions. And even just a little bit more of this can be good. And like anything, the first step to making something better is even just the awareness of it. So we have to have a relaxed awareness about relaxed awareness and all the other components, but just this mindset that we want to be more emotionally attuned with our loved ones, with people we interact with, even it can be acquaintances that we respond in this way, can be really important. So it, I thought this book does a good job of talking about a topic that doesn't get discussed in enough detail. As I mentioned, attunement can be a new word for many people, including my phone. Um, and I think it breaks it down in a way that makes it easy to understand and digest and something that you can keep in mind. Again, just the awareness might make you pay attention to paying attention to whoever it is you are talking to and interacting with. So that was Missing Each Other by Edward Brodkin and Ashley Palathra. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, talked about the book Missing Each Other by Edward Brodkin and Ashley Palathra about emotional attunement. And in this segment, I wanted to talk about emotional attunement in parenting. One of the most emotional, probably the most emotional demanding uh, relationship that we have in the sense that you have to be so mindful of your own feelings, but you're also responsible for another one, another person's feelings. In a romantic relationship, you are to a degree going to care about how your partner is feeling, but you have less of a responsibility of taking care of that individual. But in a parent-child relationship, there is a responsibility to overall take care of and protect the child. But we want to look at what does that actually mean when we're talking about emotional attunement. So if we use these uh, four principles that they've come up with here uh, as a guiding posts or point of how to look at this interaction or these processes of parenting, we start with that first state of relaxed awareness. So this could be uh, a tough one for parents to achieve, or especially if we think of all the time, you're not going to be in that state all the time, of course, just as a human being. And also when you're a parent and have so much going on, we can't expect that you're going to be always in this relaxed, aware state, but it's something you want to strive towards, something to recognize that if you are not in this state, you are less likely to be able to be emotionally attuned and connected to your child. They discussed in the book how when our cortisol levels are high, it's actually harder for us to experience empathy and to connect. And so you didn't need to necessarily know that in the microbiology type of a level to know your experience that when you're stressed, it's harder for you to be there for someone else or to really understand what they're going through and connect with them. So of course, as a parent, if you are feeling really stressed, which is a big part of life for most people, but especially for parents, well, it's going to be harder for you to connect with your child. So something to be aware of, how can I take care of myself to be there for my child, to emotionally connect with them? And just as a, a general thought or idea, it's so important as a parent to pay attention to your child in an emotional way at all ages, but especially when they're young. This sounds obvious, but oftentimes parents can get caught in the trap of just managing their child's lives. I see this especially when they get into school age where a lot of parents take on the role of school manager, 
checking and extracurriculars, I guess, but really just this kind of manager of grades and homework and teachers and classes and the emotional relationship and connection between parent and child takes a back seat because these things are primary to get these things done, to be on time to them, to make sure they're performing well. And that's the only thing that matters. But to me, the primary role of the parents is to create this relationship with their children, which includes these things of giving them the structure and the support to do the things that are good for them, for their growth and development, but primarily to create and maintain a strong emotional bond and connection with your child. So if you have this state of relaxed awareness, you will be able to then listen to your child and take in what they are telling you more, which when we're talking about interactions, the parent-child relationship is like this 24-7 interaction in the sense that you're always aware of your child to some degree. Yes, you can't just be only aware of them, but you want to have some level of awareness of what they're going through, what kind of mood they are in, what have they experienced recently. Parents often realize if they look at their kids' tantrums, they'll recognize some things that might have contributed to it. They didn't have their nap or a short nap or someone visited, so the whole routine was off. Some things or something likely contributed to them getting there. So as a parent, the more you're aware of what your child is going through, the less you'll be surprised. They'll still surprise you, but you might be less surprised by the things that they do. Now, one thing I really wanted to focus on in discussing this emotional attunement was also how you respond to your child's feelings. So all of us go through intense feelings, but children especially will experience intense feelings and depending on their age will vary in their degrees of how much they can handle these intense emotions and intense feelings. And so parents have a responsibility and a role in helping children soothe depending on their age again and how intense the feelings are. But we play a role in this that can be pretty challenging to know how much or what we're exactly supposed to be doing. One of the biggest issues I see when people are responding to someone else who is experiencing strong feelings, not just parent and child, but for all people, is this strong pressure to take away a negative feeling. So a friend comes to you sad and we think, I need to make them happy. I need to take away their sad feeling. And so the way we respond reflects that. We don't give them space to share how they're feeling or validate how they're feeling or empathize. We often quickly jump to taking it away, either telling them it's not that bad or don't cry or it could have been worse or at least you have this, something that we try to just twist it into a positive space to take away their sadness or whatever it is that's that negative feeling that they have. Because we think that's our, our job, our role. And it's a feeling that we think we should take it away that also comes from our own feeling. First of all, what's our own tolerance of negative emotions, which to me is a critical component of our mental health. How able am I to sit with feelings that are not pleasant, because life will include feelings that are not pleasant. Those unpleasant feelings will actually inform me and help me 
to understand myself and to live a better life, which is very important. And so because of that, I want to be taking those feelings in and not just getting rid of them. But also importantly, the more I can tolerate my own negative feelings, the more I can tolerate the negative feelings of someone else, the more I can allow myself to be there while that person doesn't feel good and not feel the need to immediately get rid of those feelings. So importantly, when we're interacting with someone and they're feeling emotional, we have to be mindful that this desire tends to be there, this reaction to get rid of the negative feeling quickly in ourselves and in others, but to resist it to a degree and to just create space for the individual to share what they're feeling with us more than just change their feeling. And so to first respond with a level of just validating and empathy rather than advice or spinning or changing what the story or experience is. We see this even in the most extreme of examples. Someone loses a family member, even tragically, even someone very young, and people think they have to spin it in a positive way. Well, you know, you should be grateful for the 12 years you had him. Well, you know, uh, they're in a better place, so you can't be ha- you can't be sad. They want you to be happy. And so we basically are convincing people that they need to feel good, which I think in the last segment, I'm going to touch on this bias that we all have. So we want to resist that very strongly if we can. And we can help someone. I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the parents are going to help soothe the child. So it doesn't mean we're not going to at all try to help the person we're dealing with, especially if it's a child, to feel better or to feel less bad. But the way I think of it is as if someone is freezing cold and you're trying to warm them up. And so you're not going to make them warm or hot instantly. You have to slowly help them get to that place. And another way we can think of this is if you're warm by being close to you, you will slowly heat them up. And so emotions are contagious. So actually, in a way, they will cool you down a bit too, but you will be able to warm them up if you are able to maintain your own feelings. And so this is where we can use terms like a container when we talk about feelings. Um, A parent or anyone really can try to contain the feelings of the child and their own. So if I am too overwhelmed by my child's emotional reaction, my own feelings are spilling out of this container, so I can't contain someone else's feelings. So we create space, but think of a container. It has space, but it also has borders or walls that makes it a container. You need both. So you create the space and leave space for the negative feelings, but you also create these borders or walls that make it feel safe. And we felt we feel this as adults too. If you're going to someone with your emotions, you want to feel like they can handle it. One, they won't make you feel worse or put you down or try to, you know, invalidate or just change your feelings quickly, but can they handle those feelings? Oftentimes, children will experience that their parents can't handle their feelings. The child cries and the mom or dad freaks out or yells or screams or gets really flustered. And so if the parent can't handle the child's feelings and their own feelings about what the child is expressing, the child won't feel safe to come to that individual. A great book on this topic is The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, where the gifted child is sensitive to their parents' feelings. And if they notice a need or a certain reaction, they might hold their own feelings in to take care of the parent, unfortunately. And so they learn to distance themselves from their own feelings to take care of others 
because this was a strategy that worked early in childhood. So the parent needs to be able to be this container that can hold on to their own feelings and hold on to the feelings of the child and slowly warm the child up. So the child is not going to go from crying hysterically to smiling in one second. That doesn't make sense and should not be our expectation, but they can start to calm down, start to feel more okay. You warm them up and eventually they might get there. They might still be a little bit cold for a while, but now in a more tolerable state and they feel okay. So when we try to be there for our children emotionally, we should first of all take away any feeling that they should never be sad or never be down. That's not human, it's not realistic, and it's not even healthy. They need to feel negative things as well. So I need to be able to tolerate my own negative feelings, to be able to tolerate someone else's negative feelings, and to be there for them. And I want to make them feel validated and understood, so I'm understanding what they're feeling and showing them that, but also slowly knowing that it'll take some time, help them feel better by giving them that sense that things will be okay. So this is another one of those balances that you have to do in general, but as a parent, you even think about what does a, a mother or father respond? The child comes crying, and even the mother or father might make their voice a little bit sad, like, oh, you fell down, I know that hurt, you're showing them, I'm connecting with you, I'm feeling your pain to a degree in a uh, controllable way, so I'm not breaking down, right? So we might think if I want to show you empathy, I should be like, oh my God, this is horrible. I can't believe it. This is the worst thing ever. That would in a way show you that I think what you went through was so bad, but now I can't be there for you because I'm unable to take care of my own feelings, so I can't have that space to take yours on. But so you know a parent will respond in that way of showing the the sadness, but there's also a reassurance and a hope in that. So it's not, oh my God, what are we going to do? Maybe you're going to be in pain forever. It's this, I know that hurt. I'm sorry that happened to you, but I also know that you're going to feel better. You might even say subtle things to give them that hope of, I'm sorry. Oh, let me, let me hold you. Let me hug you. It's going to feel better. You know, that's why I even do things like we kiss the boo-boo or we kiss where they're hurt to show them it's going to start healing or get better. So we give them some of that reassurance. So we're saying it's painful while also saying it'll get better. You can do both and say both at the same time. It doesn't have to either be it didn't hurt at all or it's going to be bad forever. It could be both it hurts and things will be okay. And slowly the child starts to feel that, calms down, goes from this cold state to a hot state or a hot state to a cold state, however you want to use your starting point, and they start to feel more okay. And the good thing is when we do this with our children, they start to learn that they can do this with themselves to soothe themselves, and they trust in themselves to be able to do it. And you show them that these bad feelings, we don't avoid them, we're not scared of them, but they're also going to be okay. We know that we feel bad for a little bit, that's okay, and then we slowly get to feel better. Now, of course, no matter how much you do this with your children, they still will need you at times emotionally to help them deal with it, not because they're weak or dependent, but because they're human. Because even as adults, we still need to lean on one another sometimes. Uh, a married couple, hopefully, will be able to feel that if they're feeling something emotionally, they can go to their partner for that support. Sometimes one person needs to have that emotional container and support, and sometimes things will be the other way around. And this is actually what can get tough in life is when you're both going through a stressful time, either together or separately, 
it could be hard for either of you to be there for one another. And sometimes times like this happen. So um, life is dynamic. Life is uh, unpredictable. Life is not clean. It's very messy. And so at times you will feel like you might not really be able to be there for each other. That can happen. Hopefully you can be patient enough to withstand that, get support from others. Um, but obviously we can't expect our partners to just be in this perfect, relaxed awareness state all the time. That's why we go to therapy where you can go talk to someone at least an hour or so a week where they will be in that state if they're making sure they're taking care of themselves to be there for you and give you that attunement that you need in that way. Um, but hopefully you'll get it from others as well in different forms. And hopefully whatever time it might be that you won't be able to be there for one another, you can come back to that. Sometimes I work with couples and try to get them to shift the mindset that we're not going through this hard time separately, we're going through it together. So hopefully we can support each other a bit. It might not be a lot that we can support because we're both going through something or going through the same thing together, but we can have a mindset of we're going through this hard time together rather than let's be against each other. Let's go through it together rather than separately. But coming back to the parents, it's a very challenging thing of balancing all of these things of your own feelings, their feelings. I didn't even get into how you want to be aware of your own past a great book by Daniel Siegel and another author I'm blanking on, Parenting from the Inside Out, talks about understanding your own stuff from your past because inevitably it's going to uh, interfere consciously, unconsciously with how you experience your own children. So when we talk about relaxed awareness, there's various levels of knowing that and then also understanding ourselves in the communication. But just wanted to share some thoughts there on parenting and attunement and emotional attunement, which applies really to anyone we're being attuned with, but specifically in the parent-child relationship. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So we've been talking about emotional attunement based on this book, Missing Each Other by Edward Brodkin and Ashley Palartha. And so in this last segment, I wanted to talk about a bias that we all have, or really it's, it's in a way it's hard to call it a bias, but it is that it creates a cognitive bias, but it's a bias that all biological beings have understandably, which is that we like positive feelings, the ones that feel good, and we dislike negative feelings, the ones that don't feel good. And essentially we can even say this is why we have feelings, is that the good feelings makes us go towards those things that are that make us feel good and go away from the things that make us feel bad in a, almost a reaction type of a way. So it makes sense that we would prefer the good ones and dislike the ones that don't feel good. They don't feel good and it makes sense to have some of that bias in us. But unfortunately, it also creates this cognitive bias and it also creates situations where we will prefer a short-term good feeling over a long-term good feeling or do something that feels good in the moment but might hurt us later over delaying that good feeling, delaying gratification for something in the long run. And so we see this in our thinking too. You know, if I hear someone talk, if someone's giving you a speech or something, they say, you know, when I got fired from my job, I felt really down. But then I thought, and whatever they say to fill in that blank, but if it ends with them saying they then felt good, 
we're going to be like, okay, yeah, that was great. Okay, that's a good way to think, is to think that way. So much so that people even say, you know, someone's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, my, my husband left me, but I didn't care. People are like, yeah, that's great. Like, you didn't care. Well, if your husband or wife leaves you and you feel nothing, I'm really concerned about you. Really, really worried about you. Something's not working right in your emotional machinery if you feel nothing when your spouse leaves you. So we have this bias so strongly that no matter what someone says to a degree and then in our own lives, if it ends with feeling better, we somehow think that's good no matter what it is. Or if it took away a bad feeling, that was the good thing to do. That was right. And there's no reason to even dispute it. And of course, if we take this to the extreme, that means if you're feeling bad and someone gives you a drug and it makes you feel good, we would say it's good. Now, most of us won't agree with that, although we do that in a lot of ways. If you look at the Western medical model and how we use medicine, at times it very much is like this. Well, you don't feel good, take the pill for whatever that thing is. Anti-fill-in-the-blank is what you take. Anti-pain, anti-depression, anti-anxiety. You just take a pill to feel better. And of course, we don't want to just have suffering go um, unchecked or not be attended to, but we are going to miss a lot when we get rid of these, the negative feelings, the ones that don't feel good. And so what is paradoxical in a way is that to live a good life, you have to embrace feeling bad. To live a happy life or a fulfilling life or a life you're content with, you have to embrace bad feelings and feeling bad. So we think that if we want to be happy, just go towards what feels good constantly, but that doesn't lead to what a good life is, because that's just going to give you the short-term goods. But when we look at what makes a good life and makes people half happy in the long term about their life, it includes things like relationships, which of course feel amazing and feel good when they're good, but in order to create and maintain a happy, healthy relationship, you have to embrace feeling bad in that relationship. You have to embrace having uncomfortable conversations. That's a big one for me. Things are feeling okay, but someone in the relationship doesn't feel good and they have a choice. Well, it's feeling good just sitting here, having our coffee and pretending like everything's okay. So if I want to just feel good, I shouldn't bring it up. But if we embrace that there is bad feelings that are good and this goes back to another one of uh, the things I like to talk about, which is that we have to differentiate between pain that leads to growth and pain that leads to damage. Avoid the pain that leads to damage, but embrace and go into pain that leads to growth. And so these uncomfortable conversations are a perfect example of pain that leads to growth. It's an uncomfortable conversation, doesn't feel good in the moment, can feel even emotionally painful to a degree. But if handled well, it will lead to the betterment of the relationship, more intimacy, closeness. And also, if it's not brought up, it leads to uh, estrangement, to resentment, to tensions building, and eventually things like that leads to the deterioration of a relationship. Sadly, you see so many couples and they say, we grew apart. We grew apart. And so if they really mean they grew apart, which would imply they were at one point very connected and together, that means slowly they grew apart, which means at some point, I always show this with my hands, even though I'm talking on the radio, but at some point they were getting apart. And if either one of them 
turned back towards the other one and pushed back towards creating that closeness and connection, well, then they would not have grown apart. They could have grown back together and stayed closer together. And so unfortunately, what leads to people growing apart is avoiding dealing with the issues and facing what's going on. Oh, what's the point? Or I don't want to bother them, which is is kind of funny. Again, it's such a short-term way of looking at it. Uh, If we think about it, it's like you're saying, I don't want to bother my partner in the moment. Obviously, it's also ourselves that's avoiding it, and we might be putting it on them. But let's just say, I don't want to bother my partner in the moment, so I'd rather slowly kill our relationship and let it uh, lead to us growing apart. And either we're just going to be unhappily married or divorce because of that. So we, we have to go into that discomfort and recognize that a good relationship has to embrace feeling bad. A good life has to embrace bad feelings and not feeling good in the moment. And recognize how strong this bias is. Again, of course, we're biological beings. If something doesn't feel good, you go away from it. That's what it's for. You go into a room. Right now, our room here, it's a little bit warm. I'd rather go away from it, but I would have to stick through this slight discomfort to get through the rest of this show. But my body just reacts to not wanting me to be in the room because of the temperature. You go towards something that doesn't feel good, you want to go away from it. You are about to have a conversation, this doesn't feel good. Of course, your reaction is going to be to go away, but we have to go into that. Similarly with feelings like sadness or anger. We think of these as negative things, bad things. Sadness is bad. Anger is bad. And yes, when you experience them, they can feel bad. Also, if they are in extremes or reacted to, they can lead to bad outcomes. Sadness, of course, we're talking about depression, extreme sadness, then things like um, addiction, but also suicide. But anger can lead to aggression and violence and hurting others, absolutely. But it doesn't mean the feelings are all bad. That if you're angry and express it in an appropriate way, that's not bad at all. That's actually necessary to be be emotionally okay yourself. And whoever you're in that relationship with, in order to maintain a healthy relationship, you'll have to be able to express anger to them. So if you can't embrace your own bad feelings, you won't live a good life. And if you can't share them with your partner, you can't have a good life or a good relationship in this sense. So it seems paradoxical because I would think of a happy relationship, you think of happy feelings, which it will include those for sure, but it also has to include the negative feelings. It has to include the bad feelings in order to be able to stay strong and to stay healthy. It's not possible to have a good relationship without bad feelings in it as well. So something to be aware of and mindful of that you don't go away from them and think that, well, if this hurts me or hurts my partner, I shouldn't bring it up. You have to ask yourself, well, what's that pain from? Is this something that should be avoided or something that should be embraced? And most people, unfortunately, haven't had good experiences with their negative feelings and think they should go away from them. And we also get misled by our positive feelings because part of this positivity bias is that anything positive is good. So if someone tells you, and I went through this and I feel good about it, we encourage that. We say, okay, good. Yeah, I guess keep doing it if it feels good, if it felt right. You know, I'm I'm dating people and then I just don't even get close to them. And so when we break up, I don't feel anything if it doesn't work. They don't call me, I don't care. If they, you know, they text me, okay. If they don't, who cares? Well, that sounds good in a way that it's protective, but what it also means is you're not letting yourself feel connected to anyone that's there. So even here, we recognize that opening ourselves up to get hurt is necessary to have a good relationship. 
another what might appear to be a paradox. You have to allow yourself to get hurt in order to feel good. It's the only way it can happen. You have to allow yourself the risk of rejection, the risk of getting hurt and things not working out in order to feel good in the relationship to actually be happy. So yes, in the moment, it could be easier not to care and not let yourself care or get close to other people, but you won't allow yourself also to experience any of the good things of life. You can't have the good life if you don't have the bad feelings or even the risk of the bad feelings. Um, even this is sad when you hear people talk about dating, they'll say, oh, did you catch feelings in this negative way? Meaning, did you feel for the other person? Did you feel attached, connected to them, or do you like them? And that it's seen as a weakness, sometimes even more so for men to have feelings, to catch feelings for the other person. And so it's, you know, I've seen memes like catch flights, not feelings or whatever, which sounds funny and cute and catchy, I guess catch being the, the word there. Um, but it means you're also not allowing yourself to get close. And there's this sense that, well, if I'm not feeling for people, not catching feelings, I'm stronger or I'm protected or that feels good. Yes, it feels good in the sense that you can't get hurt if you don't catch feelings, but you also can't feel good in the relationship if you don't catch feelings. So you're protecting yourself, but really you're preventing yourself which is often the case. When we overprotect, we're really just preventing. So yes, you can't get hurt by anyone. Congratulations. But you'll never feel the most wonderful feeling we have as human beings, which is that close emotional connection that we get from our relationships. So going back to this idea that to live a good life, you have to embrace bad feelings. When we look at long-term studies of happiness and well-being, we see that the most important component that gives us that is our relationships. And it was broken down by one of the leads of a long-term study that it really comes down to love. That's it. That love that you feel in relationships is what predicts having a good life and feeling good about your life. So you can protect yourself from getting hurt in a relationship, but you'll prevent yourself from feeling love and loving and experiencing the most beautiful feelings that we can have as human beings. So you have to ask yourself, am I protecting or am I preventing? And oftentimes we are preventing. So we have to be mindful of this bias that all of us have to go towards the positive and away from the negative. It's good most of the times, but when it comes to longer term benefits that we are looking for, when it comes to living a good life and the more meaningful decisions we have to make, we have to stop and think about what it is we're going away from and what it might be that we are avoiding by going away from that. That our good feelings can actually lead us astray and our tendency to go away from bad feelings might prevent us from going into the things that will lead to a good and better life. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lalakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.